before I get going, I just, I have to admit I'm excited. I'm excited about tonight's message. Um, it's something I prayed about and I felt like God said, I want you to go back to this topic. I've taught on this before, um, but I feel like this is something that um, God wants us uh, to hear at this time. Um, and I'm going to start in Job chapter 1, which is literally the oldest chapter in the entire Bible. Um, of course, Genesis talks about creation in the beginning, but Genesis wasn't written by Adam. Genesis was written by Moses quite a bit later. The oldest book, the first book written in the Bible is actually Job. And Job chapter 1 uh, verse 6 is the very first mention of the devil. And it's very interesting. There's a biblical principle that says that the principle of first mention, that when uh, something is introduced biblically, um, that at its first mention, there are always major principles laid down about it. So we're going to look here at the very first mention of the enemy. And it says this in Job 1 verse 6. It says, on uh, one day as the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, Satan, the accuser, came with them. Where have you been? The Lord asked Satan. And he replied, from, from earth where I've been watching everything that's going on. The Bible describes Satan as the accuser. The accuser. That's at the very beginning of the Bible. If we look in Revelations, uh, verse, or chapter 12, verse 10, uh, through 12, it says, um, Then I heard a loud voice saying, In heaven now salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, talking again about Satan, who accused them before our God day and night, has been cast down. And they overcame him, who? The accuser, by the blood of the lamb. How did we overcome Satan? the accuser, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives even unto death. From beginning to end, the Bible refers to Satan as the accuser. This is one of his prominent roles. This is literally how the Bible introduced the enemy. He is accusing you. That voice that some people hear when they get up in the morning reminding them of all the mistakes they made yesterday, that's the devil. When he's reminding you of what you didn't do or what you did do or what you should have done or when you lost your temper or how you should have spent more time with your family or how when you spent time with your family you did it wrong or you should have given more or you should have thought uh, less about that and more about something else and when you sense that, that feeling of accusation, 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 accusation. The Bible says that is the devil's role. And some, some Christians live paralyzed by that sense of failure. And when we are focused on our mistakes, it keeps us from succeeding. Uh, I'm reminded of a, a, a situation one time. I was doing an adventure race. Now, an adventure race, uh, the type I was doing was teams of four, um, always co-ed by at least one member. And then this race 
was um, approximately 100 miles. And I say approximately because they don't have a course. Um, it's UTM coordinates, so coordinates on a map. And they'll say, go here, then you know, ride your bike to here, ride your bu a bike to here, ride a bike to here, then get in a canoe, canoe to here, canoe to here, then hike to here, to here, to here. But it's up to each team to decide how to get there. So your point may be five miles from the next point, and there can be a mountain in between. You get to decide, do I go over the mountain, around the mountain, around it this way? Um, how do I get there? And so we were doing one of these races, and uh, it turned out to be about a 34-hour long race for us. And um, we got started. We were doing great. We were in, I think it was second or third place out of 27 teams. And we were just rocking. We were in a section where we're riding mountain bikes through the mountains in Arkansas, out in the book, the, the sticks. And it was nighttime. Um, and we got to a, a fork in the road. I was the navigator. I'm trying to decide which way are we supposed to go. And I said, I think we go this way. And everyone was thrilled because we had just spent a long time climbing up a mountain and the path we were taking was downhill. So we just got on the end. We were booking it. I remember my speedometer said we were going over 20 miles an hour and we just covered ground so fast. And then shortly after we got to the bottom of that mountain, miles later, we realized it was the wrong trail. We had gone the wrong direction. And what took us moments to do took us hours to undo. And we had to turn around and in the dark climb this same mountain that we had just raced down. And I remember feeling so bad about it. And I had this group of, of three other people who were with me who, it wasn't their mistake. I made the mistake. I was the navigator. And they could have just kept going and, and, and they could have blamed me over and over throughout the race when we got to a checkpoint and we had gone from second place to like 14th place. They could have um, made a big deal out of it, but they didn't. And I was so grateful about that. Now, the interesting thing is that many of us have a perspective of God. We think God is the type of person, he's the type of team member who would be constantly reminding us our mistake. Oh yeah, we're in, we're in 14th place because of your mistake, because if it hadn't been for you, if it hadn't been But is that really God's nature? Let's look at Proverbs chapter 24, verse 16. It says, for a righteous man falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked shall fall by calamity. Now that particular verse, is pretty popular. But let's look at verse 17. It says, do not rejoice when your enemy falls and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and it displeases him and he turn away his wrath from him. How interesting. Not only is God not the type to point out your errors, the Bible says God is even displeased when you point out your enemy's errors. Wow. That is heavy. To realize this is God's character. He is not a focuser on 
the things that are done wrong. Who does that? That's the enemy. That's the devil. He doesn't even want us to focus on our enemy's mistakes. Think about that in this political time and, and to those posts you were thinking about making about in, on Facebook about the party that you disagree with and the mistakes that they were going to make and the name-calling and, oh, God says, don't even dwell on the mistakes of your enemy because that is displeasing to God. So if God doesn't want us to focus on our enemy's mistakes, why do we think we should be focused on ours? Let's look at God's character. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8 says, He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. That's that's big. Now, with that in mind, let's go read what love is in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. Here it is. It keeps no record of wrongs. Verse 6, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. What an awesome verse. And I've heard that verse read at, at weddings. I've seen it written out on kitchen towels. It is a very popular verse. But remember, it's not just describing love. The Bible says God is love. That verse is describing God. So, God is patient. God is kind. He does not envy. He does not boast. He is not proud. He is not rude. He is not self-seeking. He's not easily angered. And he does not keep record of wrongs. He is not focused on your shortcomings. Love, God does not delight in evil, but he rejoices with the truth. This is God's character. It is a description of God. We make mistakes. That's part of human nature. Paul, he wrote the majority of the New Testament. In Romans chapter 7, verse 15, he says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. You can raise your hand because you're at home, but how many of us have ever felt that way? Like, oh, I, I know what I want to do, but I keep doing what I don't want to do. I know how I want to to handle frustrating moments, but I keep not handling them right. What do I do? We need to not listen to the devil's voice that's beating us up about it, but listen to what God says. He says, I am not doing that. If you're, if you are, he's, he, God says he's not focused on our errors. If we focus on the negative, if we focus on that, then we are assisting the devil in his plan and strategy. And even little things. I mean, I'm a preacher. When I finish with this message, I am going to run over every word I mispronounced, every uh, mistake that I made. It will automatically try to come to my mind. And I have to remind myself and I've said it many times. I've said, you know what? I recognize I made mistakes, but it's the Holy Spirit who really uh, does that work. And he 
can use what I said even if I didn't say it perfectly, even if I mispronounced something. I just need to remember God is not focusing on my errors. So why should I? We tend to have the, the thought, well, if it's true, I can focus on it. Philippians 4.8 says, Finally, my brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The Bible doesn't say truth is the only um, factor. Yes, we want to focus on the truth, but we want to focus on those truths which are also noble, just, pure, lovely, good, of good report, and praiseworthy. It's not true, is not the only test. Yes, you've made mistakes. So have we all. We need to learn how to operate in his forgiveness. The Bible says in Psalms 103, verse 2, it says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. When God forgives, he says, it's so far from, uh, I, I, your transgressions are so far from where I am. They're as far as the east is from the west. There's a map on the wall behind me. If I go north to south, I'll eventually get to the top of the world and I head south again. And then when I head south, I'll eventually head north again. But if I head east on that map, on a globe, it just keeps going and going and going. If I head west, it just keeps going west, 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 west. East, 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 east. They never meet like north and south does. God, he just separates our sin. His perspective of you is not a filter through your mistakes. That is the enemy. In order to embrace God's perspective of us, we have to understand his forgiveness. Some of us have a habit. We ask forgiveness over and over and over and over again. But the truth is, God forgives the first time. And he casts it as far as the east is from the west. Usually, if we struggle to accept forgiveness, it's because we don't believe we deserve it. We tend to feel that we're not unworthy of forgiveness. But God says it's not our worthiness that he is focused on. I'm going to hold that thought for a little bit later. We're talking about forgiveness. And any time that we talk about God not focusing on our sins, not focusing on our failures, there is a tendency, there is a temptation to then say, well, if everything is for, can be forgiven, what, what am I even doing trying to do right? Why don't I just sin? The Bible talks to that in Romans 6, verse 1 and 2. It says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? See, Paul had just talked about how much grace God has and how much forgiveness he has. And so he says, should we then just, hey, let's sin so that grace can abound? He says, certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live in it any longer? And I like to think of the example of a husband and wife. If you're married and your spouse is kind 
and forgiving to you and you realize, you know what, I can make a mistake. And when I make a mistake, my wife is not going to shove that in my face. Does that make you want to make mistakes? Do you think, well, I, I think I really want to mistreat that person. No. When you see that someone loves you and is willing to forgive you, it doesn't make you want to need forgiveness. It makes you want to be worthy of their love. And that's what Paul is saying. Don't. In, in, in verse 14, he says, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law but under grace, from slaves of sin to slaves of God. See, there was a time when we were under the, the control, the dominion of sin, and we're not under that anymore. We're free. If you've ever known someone who had an addiction, let's say it was an addiction to alcohol, an addiction to cigarettes, or an addiction to, to, to overeating, whatever that addiction is. Have you ever seen someone who was addicted overcome that addiction? Someone who used to be addicted to cigarettes get to a point where they don't have to have a cigarette every day. How do they respond? Hey, I'm free from cigarettes. I am now able to make my own choices. I think I'll choose to have another cigarette. No, no, not if they understand. Hey, I've been freed from the control that that cigarette used to have on me. I'm not going to celebrate my freedom by going back into bondage. And that's what the Bible says about sin. He says, hey, if you understand what has happened to you, if you understand how you have been freed from the control of sin, then when you recognize that your sin has been forgiven and that it's not held against you, you won't want to race back to it. Yes, we make mistakes, but God is willing and able to forgive us. He's not focused on those mistakes. Let's look at John chapter 16. This describes the Holy Spirit. It says here, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. This is Jesus speaking to the disciples. It is to your advantage that I go away. <laughs> Big words there. Jesus Christ is saying, you're going to be better off when I'm gone. Wow, I just such a powerful thing. Well, why will we be better off when he's gone? For if I do not go away, the Helper, speaking of the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. The Holy Spirit will convict us of sin. The Holy Spirit convicts. The devil, on the other hand, condemns. Let's go look at Romans 8, verses 1 through 4. It says, there is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has, been, has made me free from the law of sin and death. Here Paul is talking again about that freedom. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled. That is, the law 
that says you and I deserve punishment for our wrong. That law has been satisfied. The requirement of payment for our sin has been fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So the Bible says that there is no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus, but he sent his Holy Spirit to convict us of error and sin. We as Christians can and will be and should be convicted when we do wrong. The Holy Spirit does convict us of wrongdoing. And he says, he speaks to us, but he speaks very differently than what the enemy does. There is the conviction from the Holy Spirit and there's condemnation from the enemy. Now let's, let's, let's look at how those sound. Let's say we've, we've made a mistake, we lost our temper and we shouted at our kids. Um, conviction of the Holy Spirit would say, you know, that's not showing God's love to your kids. That's not the right way to behave. God loves you even though you've done that. And it will be pleasing to God when you put in effort to avoid doing that again. Now that is the conviction of the Holy Spirit that says, hey, you are righteous in God's eyes. He sees you through the righteousness that Jesus obtained for you on the cross. But we still want to avoid wrongdoing. But your right standing with God has not been affected. He loves you no matter what. That's conviction. Now here's condemnation. Oh, you did that again. You just lost your temper with your kids. God still saw that. He is totally displeased with you. You thought you were a Christian. Obviously, you're, you're a dysfunctional Christian. You weren't right. God is not going to be happy with you until you manage to make up for that somehow. And I don't know if you can because you've done it so many times. You see, conviction says what you're doing is wrong. And by doing it, you sadden a wonderful God who loves you. Condemnation, on the other hand, says you are unworthy because of what you are doing. And now God doesn't like you, doesn't accept you, doesn't receive you. And that is not true. We need to recognize God loves me and he approves of me. Not necessarily everything I ever do, but of me. The devil says, what about your failure? And our response needs to be that we're going to keep our focus on God's view. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13, and I said I was going to talk about this. Our righteousness, our right standing, our perfection does not come from us. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13 through 18 says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand the, in the evil day, and having done all to stand, all to stand, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Our defense is a breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith, which you will, 
with which you will be able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked one. That breastplate of righteousness, what is that? That is right, righteousness is right standing. It's uh, the state of not being guilty. We have the righteousness of God. We have his right standing. Look in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 and 9. It says, Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ, Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having, listen to this, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law. In other words, the law, the ability to follow the rules and never make mistakes, that would be my righteousness, and no one can succeed completely in that arena. It says, not my righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that is from God by faith. That's what we're called to have. We're called to have the righteousness of God and be recognize it. When you realize how God views you, he is not looking at your track record. He's looking at Christ's track record. He says, I have given you that righteousness. If God is attributing the righteousness of Jesus Christ to us, then when he looks down at us, he's not seeing our errors. He's not seeing our mistakes. He's seeing his perfection. We've, most of us are familiar with the story in Luke 15 of the prodigal son. The prodigal son was a jerk. The prodigal son went to his father and said, I know you're not dead, but I want my inheritance now. I don't feel like waiting around till you die. Just give me my money and I'm going to leave. And surprisingly, the father did it. He split his inheritance. He gave the, the cash to his son. He said, okay, there it is. That's yours. And his son took off. And the Bible says he wasted it and squandered it. And then he found himself penniless, serving and trying to work in a pig pen, trying to make ends meet. And that he realized, man, even the servants at my parents' house are treated better than this. If I was to go back to my parents' house, not as a son, but just as a servant, I would be better off than I am right now. That's what I'll do. I'll go back. And I realize that I don't deserve to be treated as a son anymore. But maybe, just maybe, he'll hire me as a servant. So the prodigal son goes back. And much to his surprise, the, his father loves him even though he made mistakes, even though he wasn't deserving. That is how God sees us. He sees us as that father. He says, I, I love you. Of course I do. You don't have to be a servant. You can come back and I will continue to love you as a son. I want to encourage you. The Bible says in 1 Samuel 16, 7, it says, For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. I, I want for you the freedom that comes from rejecting the abusing, accusing of the enemy. The devil comes and says, you are to blame. You're to blame for everything. You are the problem. 
to many people, he, he even says you're to blame for the mistreatment that other people had given to you. That is not God's voice. That is the strategy that the devil has been using since the beginning of time. The Bible calls him the accuser of the brethren. When we come to Christ, he cleans our closet. And we need to stop listening to what the devil is saying about us because that is not the way that God sees us. We can't receive God's blessing if we allow that accusing uh, voices to keep us from returning to the Father. What would have happened to the prodigal son if he'd just stayed away? Oh, I'm sure that, that, that my dad won't receive me, so I guess I won't go back. He'd have missed out. It took faith to come back. He had faith that maybe his father would let him back in as a servant, but it turns out his father let him back in as a son. Your heavenly father is ready, willing, and able to let you back in as a son. If you are a Christian, if you have already accepted God's forgiveness, then you have that breastplate of righteousness. Your right standing with God isn't based on your actions. It's based on Jesus' actions. And don't let the narrative that the, the devil will put in your mind hold you back. If you've never accepted that forgiveness, the Bible tells us in Romans 10, 9 and 10, how to receive that. It says, if you believe in your heart that Jesus died on the cross and confess with your mouth that he rose from the dead, you will be saved. What does that mean? What does it say? What are you saved from? You're saved from the sin that separated you from God. You're saved from the, the mistakes that you made that meant you deserved punishment. But now, Jesus took that punishment, and you instead get what he deserved. If that's you, if you want to make that declaration, if you want to do that, I want to take a moment here at the end of our service and do that with you. Let's pray. Just repeat after me. Say, Dear God, I believe that you died on the cross after living a perfect life. And I believe that you forgave my sin. I believe that you rose from the dead. And I choose to make you the Lord of my life. In Jesus' name, amen.